Today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners, who for more than 25 years have successfully delivered interim and permanent leadership talent to transform businesses. To hire the talent you need to enable your business to thrive, visit www.progressotalent.com today. Sue Anstis, MBE, is the founder of Fearless Women, a company with a powerful ambition to drive positive change for women's sport. She has enjoyed a highly successful sports marketing and PR career, spanning 30 years delivering highly successful campaigns, encouraging more women and girls to take part in physical activity. That tireless commitment saw her awarded the MBE in 2018 for services to grassroots and women's sport. A founding trustee of the Women's Sports Trust, she is the host of the highly successful podcast, The Game Changers, now in its fifth series featuring high-profile athletes and some of the most influential women in global sport. 2021 sees the launch of Sue's book, Game On, The Unstoppable Rise of Women's Sport. What's the story behind it all? Without further ado, let's get into it. Sue Anstis, welcome to the Astrology Podcast. Great to have you on as a guest. Uh, and as I'd uh, earlier referenced, an, an element of uh, poacher turned gamekeeper <laughs> as podcast host turns to interviewee. But uh, without further ado, let's dive into things. So when do you remember, first remember sport becoming such a big part of your life? I think it was probably always quite a part of my life. My dad was a PT instructor in the Metropolitan Police, so he was a very uh, man into sport and fitness. I remember him, yeah, my mum saying to him, you know, they're not your recruits when he came home to encourage us all to take part in sport and physical activity. Uh, so I think we just have a very sporty family, so watching sport, playing sport. I've got three older brothers, or a twin brother and two older brothers. So I think sport was just always very much a the norm, the go-to within our lives, really. And did you any particular sports that stand out? For me, I, I swam. So we were, we, I was quite late to learn to swim. I guess that's the irony as well as my dad used to teach people to swim for work. And then we he didn't really teach us. He, he probably couldn't be um, quite as motivated to teach us to swim. But we were quite late learning to swim. But then that's my sport that I really got into. So we 10 or 11 and then went on to swim county and national championships and stuff. So, yeah, so swimming initially and then into athletics. So athletics was you then got you went from the pool into onto the track. Yes, yeah, and my middle brother Tim, so he was a decathlete, a really good decathlete, international pole vaulter. So he was a proper athlete, really. So yeah, he loved his athletics, and I, so I think I followed him down to Feltham Athletics Club, as it was at the time, to take part in uh, athletics. So middle distance to begin with, and then four hurdles was my event eventually. So yeah, I love that. I love that, that kind of camaraderie of being at the track and being with friends I love that side of sport too so yeah for me it was athletics so I always thought that that um you know and I'm, I'm, I'm talking in a very much you know kind of school sports day sense but I always felt that that 400 meters was the worst possible distance because it was you know it's not yeah clearly 800 is quick but it's not a sprint 400 has still got that sprint feel throwing hurdles into that Goodness, that's uh, you have my admiration. <laughs> so, what, what about in terms of watching sport? Did you were there any particular sports teams? Was was you know? Did you spend your Saturdays uh, you know on a, on a terrace somewhere or anything of that sort of nature? Yeah, we didn't really watch as a family. We didn't watch live sport really as a family. We watched the television was always on with sport on television, so that was within the house. I think my dad would watch anything on television. So I think 
watching probably television sport rather than uh, anything as the spectators. And interestingly, I guess as a family, he was a Chelsea fan, but rugby was probably a sport that we watch more of. So I, and I think I kind of grew up not really following football particularly, uh, but probably more rugby as, as a family to watch. And, and in terms of those, uh, you know, I, those sort of childhood heroes, posters on the wall, that sort of thing. Who were those that the, you, uh, you you looked up to and uh, and inspired to emulate? Yeah, I guess in t- it's funny, isn't it? It's a question I ask my guests a lot on the, the Game Changers podcast. And it's when you ask it back to me, I guess it was probably around the Olympic time. So almost the Olga Corbett's on to, you know, the, the those early days. <laughs> Give my age away there, aren't I? Uh, in terms of those early days of the Olympic Games. And then probably the women that you saw, you know, around on the tennis court for around Wimbledon or say around Olympic Games and athletics. It was probably because obviously there wasn't much women's team sport to watch at all. So probably those individual athletes, really. No, I met somebody had asked me only a couple of days ago as to the first Olympics that I remembered. And the first one I, I really remember watching actually would have been the 1980 Olympics in Moscow with Alan Wells. That was the, oh, yeah. that was the, that was the race that had stood out. But uh, yeah, I think that we, when we, when we look at where we are in life today and the amount of sport that we can consume through a multitude of channels, to your point, live sport, and in particular women's sport, I mean, it just, unless you had those big events, it just didn't feature in quite such the same way, did it? So, uh, I know, that's all. So in terms of, um, I guess, the parallels between business and sport, of which I think there are many, um, what, what is it that you, what are the lessons, if you like, that you've taken from sport into, into business? Again, yeah. It, do I directly think about what I have taken from the sport? I think it probably made me a confident person. I think confident being part of a team, working with others, those things that you hear about, don't you? There's some really interesting stats, I think, from Ernst & Young around, they looked at all the women in, in sort of C-suite senior roles in the States, and about 90% of them had played team sport at some time or another. So that, although I don't directly sit and think, actually, yeah, it's sport that gave me X, Y, and Z, I'm sure that that confidence, wanting to work with other people, happy to fail at things and try again. I'm sure lots of those elements have has come from being part of sport. So take us on the journey from, from Quaker and, and Cadbury. Uh, you've enjoyed a, a fabulous career in sports marketing and PR and running your own business. But what was the, what was the story? Take us on that journey. So I, I did study PE and English at Loughborough University. It was my degree of choice. I think my, my brothers at the time mocked me. To that I was studying books and games <laughs> at university, <laughs> which was not very vocational. That has turned out to be as I've then gone on to write about and talk about sport. So I wanted to work in sports sponsorship, actually. That was my passion. At, at, I went to, When I first went to Loughborough, I wanted to be a PE teacher. People talked me out of that. But I wanted to work in sports sponsorship. And then I, I can't ever remember even who gave me the advice. But someone said, you're better off to go and get some experience in a blue chip company on a sales marketing background before you then move into sports sponsorship and marketing. So I went to work in Cadbury's. I was a, the sales graduate that year for Cadbury's. Uh, I was there a couple of years. And then actually the guy I was sat next to was headhunted for the job with Gatorade, the sports drink uh, sponsorship role. And uh, he did, wasn't about to leave. Hugh Bunn, I still have some contact with him now. And he said, oh, you should talk to the girl that sat next to me because she's really passionate about sport. She went to Loughborough and um, and so, yeah, by default, anyway, I went for the interview and I got offered the job uh, working in sports marketing for Gatorade. They're about to launch into the UK. Uh, as it happened, I was there for a couple of years. They never launched in the end in the UK, various reasons, and they went into different markets. So I did all the work, pre-prep work with sports teams and clubs to build their 
reputation, the authenticity and the credibility of the brand. And then again, they didn't launch from the UK. So actually I was made redundant at, at 26, which was a bit of a shock at the time. It my dream job, really, traveling to all these different countries, working with sports brands and clubs. And then I worked for a little while for an agency uh, in London and then YNR. And then I set up on my own. So my back bedroom in Heston, uh, I set up the agency and I took Gatorade then became my first client. So although they weren't doing stuff in the UK, they were doing a lot in Europe. So I, they were my, my first clients. And I did some stuff for 220 magazines, find some sponsorship for their uh, triathlons and began to do a bit of work in that space. So sports sponsorship was really how I established the agency initially. That's why I thought we would be a sports sponsorship agency. What was the, the inspiration? Was it that sort of eureka moment? You thought, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to do this on my own. What was what was it that inspired you to go down that road? Yeah, I wish it wasn't as romantic as that. I think it was more <laughs> that almost like, what did I have to lose? Actually, what happened was I was working for a lovely company, part of the part of YNR, Young and Rubicon, the advertising agency, in their sports sponsorship uh, division, so MDI, and a lovely guy there, my boss at the time, Paul Narraway. We were working for I was working for Gatorade. And they were working for Coca-Cola and Powerade. And there was a conflict of interest. So I, the gateway came back to me and said, oh, would you like some of this business? And I couldn't do it while I was still working at the agency with him. So I thought, oh, I could just happen to it on my own. And he, you know, to give him massive credit, and I still do 20 whatever years later, he sent me off on my way. I just bought Booper in to sponsor a triathlon down in Bath. And he said, oh, I, he let me take that business with me to set up on my own, which was so generous. When I look back in retrospect, that it was agency, business I bought into the agency, but he let me take it to set up on my own. So I had Booper as a client. I had Gatorade and uh, the triathlon work. So, yeah, so I think I did it. And I thought, actually, what did I have to lose? If it didn't work out, I would, or I said to everybody, I'll go and get a job. If it didn't work out, I could go and find a role somewhere else. So I think sort of pre having, I had a house with some lodges in it. It wasn't like I had a family. I didn't have massive dependency on me in terms of income. So I didn't feel particularly brave. It just felt like, oh, give this give this a go and see how it works out, really. Which is, uh, I'm sure there are many who um, who have contemplated that, you know, do I go out on my own? Do I make, do I make the break? Do I go for it? Um, and clearly some do, clearly some don't. Can you remember looking back that, that first day, if you like, where, as you say, in that back bedroom, you think, right, okay, it's all me. Here we go. How did you feel? so excited and I can still remember because I remember thinking it was like when you're a child and you play you probably didn't do this but you played shops with that whole little paper bags and sweets and weighing things out it, I felt like that but in my office because I had a fax how long it is ago isn't it my fax machine my Rolodex my phone but almost like having all those things didn't quite feel real and I was set up with my cork board and all those you know things ready to go new little logo business cards so you know it did feel a little bit like um not make-believe but like playing almost in the setup of that office so you're very exciting and I, I remember so I say Booper was one of our clients to begin with we brought them in to um work with the fitness industry association at the time which is now UK Actives they came on board as a sponsor of the commit to get fit campaign and I used to go to meetings with Booper and I was trying to be so efficient so I would by the time I got home, I would do the contact report and have it with them by the end of that evening, not even the next day. I so wanted to prove that I was super professional, that I wasn't, I never wanted anyone to say, oh, it's that girl that works in a back bedroom in Heston. And obviously they had other big agencies that were doing other work for them. And I was kind of desperate just to show that I could be as professional. So I kind of over exceeded, I think, in terms of that professionalism and wanting to prove to them 
which is probably something that stayed with the agency. My team probably regret that over time, that need to make sure everything's absolutely kind of perfect and of a really high standard. <laughs> what were some of the, perhaps the, uh, the, the initial challenges that you faced from the outset? I guess a bit of it's around confidence. Probably, I sound like I'm really confident in what I went and did, but I think actually you don't have that confidence that you can do things. But then I look back now and I guess what then running the agency and, and then employing people who are in their 20s and we, you know, you not cop right from and cop more, but you worry about what they're capable of doing and can they, and actually that's exactly what I was doing at the time. You just went off and did it and you, uh, you learn, learn along the, the way really. So um, I guess I always felt it was, it was a little bit of a battle against those big agencies with big budgets and better software systems and, you know, more of a history of experience there. But as we proved over time, you do a really good job and it's about relationships and you're trusted and you work hard, then actually it is possible to, to prove yourself in that way. And there will always be clients that would only go for the big name agencies because that's what they need to be seen to be doing. Uh, but it clearly over time, we've we proved ourselves in that way. What do you think you learned about yourself through the experience? For the whole experience of the agency? From those early days, yeah. Yeah, I guess it probably did build that whole confidence of just give it a go and what have you got to lose? I think um, I, I, mean, I work bloody hard. I do remember like friends would call on a Saturday night and say, you know, we, we're, would you want to come out with us? Because we knew you'd be in on a Saturday night because I you know, just used to work all day, all evening, all the way through because I was so passionate about it. It was my kind of baby. So I think I recognised, you know, that the uh, I could certainly work hard and put my mind to it when it was my own thing. And and in terms of the uh, the nature of sports sponsorship in those days, I mean, I, my, my um, yeah. uh, perhaps uh, you know, not not a space in which I've worked, but my perception would be that if I look at the way that the uh, the sports sponsorship has matured, if you like, over the last thirty years, I mean, it's 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 all pervasive now. It's everywhere. You know, brand is 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 everything. Mm. But my sense would be it would have been a relatively immature market at that point. I mean, I, I love, uh, I read um, Shoe Dog, Phil Knight's book, and yeah. I love that sense of kind of going around, uh, you know, the Olympics and trying to getting athletes to wear your shoes on the track and all that sort of good thing. <laughs> but it clearly was an advance beyond that. But yeah. the industry must have changed immeasurably through Absolutely, through your yeah. tenure. And that's almost when I moved away from it. So I guess that was those early days, I think when getting Booper on board to sponsor the Bath Triathlon, I found when we cleared out the office recently, I've still got it, I've kept it, but the deck that I sent to them with my cut out pictures from Triathlon magazine stuck in to, you know, that's and photocopied, colour photocopied and sent out to people. You know, that's almost, you forget that's how we pitch for business. But that, and a bit of a scattergun approach out to lots of different people and Booper, you know, it landed on their desk, they liked it, they came on board. Um, so clearly completely different way of selling working sponsorship now. And I think when in the early years, it was a fabulous, if you, if you were able to sell a sponsorship, then you've got a lovely commission, 20%, you know, that's great. That's it set you up for the next few months or so. And what happened and where we evolved is more clients wanted us to provide more PR support or more comm support. I was quite adamant that we weren't ever going to be a PR agency. I had this negative perception of, you know, girls in black and lilies in reception marble floors and all that we weren't that we were sports sponsorship and promotion but i soon realized that actually having a regular income of a monthly retainer of someone paying you to raise profile and activate the properties and to to talk about them right over was far was a much better business model in a way than just hoping that you would get a commission because you'd sell 
a fantastic piece of business. So uh, I I think that's where we changed almost was uh, having other employees and recognizing actually getting regular retainers in. That's kind of the way to go really to to build the business rather than waiting on, uh, hoping on commission. And I think also, as you say, it, the market's changed and the likes of Synergy and Centrally and other, you know, all those other businesses. Karen Earl was around at the time. Actually, I, inter- I interviewed with her yeah, way back when, when I was looking for that first job. But I think that sophistication of sports sponsorship and the massive growth and, you know, so much more about relationships and who you know that we were like such a t- tiny little element within that massive field that it was, seemed better to move in to more the the PR side and actually what we then did is we moved into the fitness sector so through the work with the fitness industry association I used to attend their board meetings and then I got to meet the guys that headed fitness first and life fitness and and all those people that work within the the fitness sector the gym chains and so on and that's where our business then grew because we at 1992 94 that was a time of rapid growth for the fitness sector so we were sort of in that sector at a time when it was uh, yeah growing very fast can you remember what was it that triggered your first employee at the point at which you think, actually, you know what, I need some, this is going great, but actually I'm going to need some help. That's a, that's a bold step to have to first make. Can you remember yeah. what, can you remember, talk us through that? Yeah, it's my lovely sister-in-law actually. Well, she is my sister-in-law now. She was that time, Karen, and it's just Karen Ray, she was. So um, yeah, I think it was probably just the volume of work and activity and running events for gay trade out in Europe. And I think, yeah, it's got really busy, really quickly working from home and uh, so she came on board to to help with time there and then yeah and then Jasmine came on board and yeah so we, eventually then we moved out of the house because we couldn't all fit in and we moved downstairs and then we moved out and got our first offices about five years into the agency being established so uh, yeah just the demand I guess as work grew and we needed more more support. It's interesting, I think, if you look at where we'd found ourselves in the last six months and actually in particular last night's announcement very timely around kind of do we go back to working from home technology today makes working from home relatively straightforward mm-hmm. depending of course on what it is that you might do but in terms of that sort of office type of role you can do that from from the home but the technology if we go back i mean the fax machine still clearly has a place if only because i understand that leo messi faxed his uh, potential <laughs> um uh, leaving from barcelona to the offices but you know the what was it like if you compare it to, to the way that technology is today? I know. And I think it's very funny, isn't it? My, my team used to get bored with that. Oh, my God, she's going on about that whole. But actually, Karen and I sitting opposite a desk, passing a Rolodex, and I still have the Rolodex. I kept that for a sort of an antiquated thing to keep. But passing a Rolodex to find a number to call somebody. You know, there was no internet. We weren't on the internet. We were writing letters and printing them out, sending out. Uh, images in little transparencies wrapped in bubble wrap to send out photographs to the media, press releases, you know, with a Frankie machine and getting them out every day. That it just, just it feels so weird that, to think how different that was. But yeah, it was very, I guess that, as you say, very physical. There's no way you could have worked in different places. Well, you could have done, but you'd have had almost two completely separate offices to have functioned in that way. So yeah, it was, it was so very different. I think it's uh, that realisation, actually, that you can just do so much with a phone. You know, and I think that's the beauty that uh, oftentimes can get forgotten, that we live in a world where methods of communication are so vast. Actually, you can't beat good old-fashioned conversation and uh, you can do so much with a phone. But fascinating. So in, in terms of what, what do you think are the key lessons that you've learned along the way from running your own business? 
I guess I talk a lot now. I'm talking to, I guess, mentoring and supporting younger people coming through into business. I think probably that being brave is something that seems to come up a lot. So I think that whole being confident to try new things and to know that you are as good as the next person there is probably something that I think was something I've learned across time. Um, So kind of having the confidence, I think there were probably things I didn't step forward for or I didn't put myself forward for because I was worried about what other people could do or what people's perception would be. So I think definitely that's something that I've learned. I think I learned uh, around surrounding yourself with great people is definitely something that has been, um, I kind of heard a few times and then witnessing that yourself. Actually, it's not about, for a long time, I think I appointed people who are almost little mini-me's in my image, many young, fantastic young women, and many of whom had some of them done the same degree as me at Loughborough, you know, come from university, etc. So knowing, well, they do a good job because they are very similar to me. And actually recognising what I need is a skill that's completely different from mine. I need people with, you know, to be much better than me at certain things and to come from different backgrounds. I guess we talk a lot now, don't we, about diversity. And I now see completely that actually we probably weren't in those early days. We were all very much of a, a similar mold and actually in the last latter years of promote as we got more men involved and people from different backgrounds actually that's where we were probably at our best so I think surrounding yourself by by good investing in good people and trying to retain them yeah it's probably a big lesson there. I think it's a really interesting point that you raise with respect to diversity because I think that so much of of the diversity agenda uh, should not just solely be about when it comes to recruitment anyway, uh, solely about say ethnicity or gender, any of those sorts of clearly very important issues, but also about experience. You know, actually about the the experiences, not only in terms of upbringing, but actually almost work experiences as well, because there are so many challenges through, through running a business these days. Actually, you need that kind of breadth of, of understanding gain from other spaces, other places, other experiences that can be a huge asset for your business. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in terms of, the story behind the Women's Sports Trust. You were one of the uh, the founding trustees of the Women's Sports Trust. What's the again? What's the story? Where did the inspiration come from? How did it come about? Yeah, so it's, um, Tammy Parler and Joe Bostock are the founders of the Women's Sports Trust, and I think it was post 2012, really. So I think Tammy, especially Tammy, is a, um, a black belt martial artist, and I think she'd wandered around London and seen all these amazing women on posters and all this fabulous coverage of women's sport, and then. And then soon after, it, it kind of fell away. And I, I think it was almost her realisation of where's it all gone? It was like amazing during London 2012. So they established the Women's Sport Trust as a, as a charity to try with a kind of really key goals of raising the profile of women's sport, getting more funding into women's sport, um, increasing role models and the presence of role models. And actually, it's interesting, Kate Richardson-Walsh, the um, England hockey captain gb hockey captain who eventually went on to win gold leading to gold in, in rio she was working with us so through the eis lifestyles program she had come to promote and she was i guess just testing the waters to see if she wanted to work in pr and comms uh, post her retirement to come and um she was contacted by the women's sport trust who said would she be interested in coming out and having a conversation about being a patron and i looked at their website and said oh my god kate looks amazing can i come with you to the meeting so i went along with her and they said oh it will be brilliant come along and be a trustee so it was just one of those things where i kind of uh, invited myself along but actually it all fell into place and um I was just so aligned to what they were trying to achieve was absolutely where where my head was too. So yeah, and I've been a, a founding trustee. I've been a trustee for them since 
2013 when the charity was first established and has gone on to do some amazing really amazing things had lots of great impact in in terms of and at a time when women's sport has been changing so much in terms of profile and funding and and uh, increasing the profile of those role models as well so you go back to it was just your point there about 2012 as i as i reflect back i remember we were all kind of caught on the the crest of a, a a london 2012 wave weren't we here in the uk where it seemed like there was just it was a phenomenal event we, we, we did a fabulous job i think we put on a great olympics but i think as as you referenced there it sort of there was a there was a big sort of upswell of support and and recognition of women's sport through the 2012 olympics that I think you just made that, that that point that it seemed to sort of fall away a little bit. Why, why do you think that was? I think it's always the way for major events. I mean, interestingly, the 2012 was the first time that women took part in every event at the Games. That's the first time, that, which is kind of extraordinary to think that it took until 2012 for that to happen. But we do really well with major events in terms of female coverage. So Olympics, World Championships, you know, the World Cup last year for football, etc. But it's the ongoing regular coverage where women fall down at the moment so we haven't we don't get that coverage for the premier 15s rugby or in the past for the barclays fawsl uh, there hasn't been that continued coverage week by week by week so great that these massive events come and wimbledon obviously every you know well usually in june july but fantastic coverage for those amazing female athletes or around the us open etc but then week to week it falls back to rugby cricket football etc the you know the, the male leagues that are so well established that then take over the mainstay of that coverage so that's and that's really what's exciting i think now you know covid aside is what's happening with sponsorship pouring into the fawsl and the and you know vitality last week announcing their sponsorship of the uh, women's fa cup and, and beginning to raise that profile and then to get those spectators and to get that coverage for women's sport on a more regular basis so it won't be a month after a major games i mean if you look at last summer 2029 2019 rather we had the women's world cup in france we had the netball world cup that followed there was a sunheim cup there was wimbledon there was like a massive summer of women's sport and it was brilliant and there were times when bbc's coverage was it was like half and half in terms of the regular coverage on their website and the app etc uh, which is all brilliant and then you kind of get to November, October November and it didn't fall off a cliff because it's definitely better than it's ever been before so it's gradually moving up but it goes back to more or less a level of where it was before and that's what we are looking to change is almost to have that consistency with the um, you know with the netball with the vitality super league etc making sure that that is covered on a regular basis rather than it just being the heights of those amazing championships. We do championships and world championships really well. It's just trying to make it more consistent. That's a long answer to a short no, question. No, no. Why do you think that is? <laughs> why, do, why do you think we do go through? I mean, because I'm, I'm reflecting back on last summer and watching, uh, I mean, I'm a huge football fan. I love all sports, but I'm a huge football fan. And I remember watching England women in the World Cup. And as I recall, I couldn't remember the specifics, but the, the viewer figures for the million. Is that what it was? Goodness <laughs> me. So I mean, it knew it was very, so there's clearly an appetite to consume. Why do you think it is, therefore, that there is that this, these peaks and troughs to which you refer? Yeah, many reasons. <laughs> many reasons. A lot around media coverage and around who runs the media and who feels it's newsworthy or not. So there's a bit of the, the gatekeepers of those that feel actually men read paper, you know, men, men are reading the sports pages, so let's put more male sport in there. You know, people like that kind of myth that people are interested in women's sport. 
so there's a bit around that. And I, and I guess a lot of the individual sports do get good coverage still. The women's individual sports is the team sports where we're almost playing catch up from 150 years ago when men's sport was for men, by men. So in cricket and football and rugby, it is still that we're kind of a bit behind. We're a bit behind. We're way behind in terms of investments and crowd sizes. And it's, and it's such a circle of those female athletes, therefore, don't get the sponsorship because they haven't got the exposure, so they're not getting paid to pay professionally, so the quality of the game hasn't been as good because they haven't been professional athletes. They're training twice a week, so how can you expect them to be playing to the level of men's sport? But that is, you know, it's all changing. The fact that in the last five years or so, they've all become professional at that highest level of of, uh, cricket and netball and rugby. So, you you know, men football, so we're beginning to see that really high quality of play. And that's what people saw at the World Cup, is to see there's a, the amazing, you know, it, people weren't just watching it because it was England. It was amazing football. And it's still those same players that will be in the FAWSL, especially now half of the US soccer team are coming across to play in the FAWSL as well. So hopefully it's, it's how, how we can maintain those crowds and that interest in women's sport beyond the major championships that that's the kind of challenge that we're, we're facing so who 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 does women's sport oh and that's a broad sweeping statement but i was gonna say who does women's sport well from a country perspective i think if i reflect on the us for example you mentioned the uh, the influx of 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 women's professional soccer players coming into into the uk the women's us I, I have a I slightly hesitate when I say soccer. Uh, having grown up a football fan, I have an aversion to that particular phrase. But if I look at the US women's soccer team and the success that they've enjoyed historically, particularly, I think they're the, they, they've got the the highest number of World Cup wins of, of any nation. Is there a particular nation that we we perhaps could look to to aspire to achieve what they achieve in terms of the promotion of of the women's game or the women's women's sport generally? Yeah. And it's different. It's different in different sports in different countries. It's really interesting, though. So I guess the success of U.S. women's soccer is a lot of that is through Title IX. So back in 1972, the kind of legal decision to ensure that everybody in all education, whatever funding went into, equally for boys and girls across all education. So within you know how massive uh, college sport is in the states. Uh, so actually all that money that was invested in male sport then had to be equally invested in female sport and a, a massive backlash and it went on in the courts for many years. Anyway, eventually it has happened. So now all those fantastic opportunities for women to have scholarships and play soccer at US universities is what has driven the success that feeds right through to the success of the US team. So massive, massive participation level. So from a soccer point of view, I think that equality right at the grassroots all the way through has made a massive difference in in the States. If you look at um, Australia and New Zealand on the netball side, you know, they very early professionalised leagues and so on. I was very lucky to be over in, in Sydney last January and went to see where the Swifts and the Giants were playing and kind of met some people and just to see walk around town and see these massive posters with Joe Harton and Helen Housby on the side of buses and you know really promoting and it's you know on live public television on a very regular basis. So they've kind of got netball really they're doing very well. And obviously that's why lots of our uh, England roses went out to play 
in have played in New Zealand and Australia and, and in a way that's kind of what helped us win the Commonwealth Games I think because they had realized actually that these are just girls like us and they had a chance to play at such a high level uh, so they're doing that really well so I guess there are different countries and, and areas doing different elements of, of women's sport better because I think the US soccer great participation but the fact is they're still fighting for equal pay and the crowds haven't been massive when they've come back out of World Cup in terms of supporting them on a day-to-day basis it's probably the WNBA in the States that has done better, perhaps, in terms of its audience and its funding and sponsorship and the profile of players too. So, uh, yeah, different countries and different sports doing well that we can look across that. Interesting that it should have taken that government intervention at a legislative, mm. if I could say it, level to... I didn't try to say it, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> to encourage that, you know, that, that, that investment to come in. Is that something... I have to forgive my ignorance, but is that something that we're doing in a similar way here in the UK? Is there still that discrepancy of investment between male and female at a, at a very young age? Yeah, I think, and I think there is. I think it's it's probably not as dramatic as it was in the States because so much of their sport is funded through college sport. So my brother was um, spent some time actually in, in uh, North Carolina at university out there. When you then, or Virginia rather, you look at the, you know, 60, 70,000 fans coming in to watch a game at the weekend. And I would be at Loughborough going, oh, there was 150 people, you know, watching the boys play rugby. So it's a big crowd and you know, there's just vastness of people going to watch college sport. So I think it's on a, such a different level um, in terms of the money and funding that goes into college sport there. Uh, but I do think, I, I question that too, actually, if you look at universities, they're getting better, definitely. But if you talk to Bucks and other universities, is it equal investment in male and female sport? And it's not just about the investment in it. Do they get the same coaches? Have they got the same access to pitches? Do they get the same S&C? Do they get the same opportunities to play? And I think it's getting better because universities are saying, you know, young women won't stand for it to, to be have have less opportunity, but that probably hasn't been equal. And if you look at, as I have done in the past, across some of the websites and stuff, it's quite male-focused in terms of sport. And then you would bring that down to, What's it like at, at colleges, at FE colleges? What's it like in schools? So probably not to the, the, the disparity isn't as massive as it is in the States, but it's definitely still there and, and something that is, you know, beginning to be called out and needs changing. Do, do you think the um, the advances in grassroots, if I look at my own experience, if I, I'm one of three, uh, the eldest of three, and my sister's five years younger. She's the youngest. Um, my brother and I only about 18 months apart. We grew up absolute football nuts. And my poor sister used to get dragged by my parents every Sunday uh, in one direction or another where my brother and I would go and play for our respective teams. And I think suddenly I know she got to a point where it's kind of, well, if I can't beat them, I want to join them. Uh, now, admittedly, this is in the early 1980s and she ended up playing for my local team or for the team that my brother and I paid, played for, club that my brother and I played for up until the age of 10 and was then told, mm, it's now no longer friendlies, it's now organised leagues, you can't play anymore. You know, so, and there, wa- there wasn't a girls team she could go to to go and um, continue uh, playing football. She ended up doing athletics. But if I look at now, if I go to my local park on a Sunday morning, there are boys and girls teams you know, across a field, hundreds and hundreds of kids playing, which is fabulous to see. Is there that investment in grassroots is that it strikes me that's come a long way it's still got a long way to go but do you see that happening from your own experiences yeah it's massive that's massive massive difference and i think the work the fa are doing with the wildcat clubs and work in school you know young schools there's a goal to get by 2024 to have girls having equal access to 
it's through their school, school, school sport partnerships. So they've got equal access to football in schools as, as boys have. And similarly, you know, 25% of those playing rugby now are women. You know, worldwide, the fastest growing area of, of rugby, it's not coming from the boys. It's coming from the girls and the women. And that's why, you know, World Rugby and others, you know, are beginning to take it very seriously and need to take it very seriously because actually that's where the growth's coming from because it's this whole market that hasn't been tapped into before either as players or fans. And and then through that, they become officials and spectators and, you know, it's, it's bringing in half the population really. So, yeah, definitely seeing massive growth and, and cricket too, reaching out into schools and communities and so on. So I say we almost feel like we're playing catch up from about 100 years ago when all those teams and leagues were formed and it was very much the kind of men that established that. It is definitely changing uh, is it changing fast enough? You know, I don't, I'm not sure it is, but it is changing and there's a bit of a groundswell to get more women and girls. And I, I feel that. I talked to lots of the players I talked to on the uh, podcast, the, in the football podcast, as you, exactly as you say, they were mocked for playing football or they were insulted or they were thrown off of the teams. And how hard do they have to fight to be able to find success? So at least now you're seeing young girls coming into the England team who have had to have a chance to play from when they were very young to becoming more of a, a natural thing that they're able to play and have access to play but yeah for many many decades women didn't have that at all that um leads us very nicely albeit clearly i'm not trying to take any credit for what seems like now a seamless link into your uh, your award of the mbe but obviously the, your <laughs> contribution to, to grassroots and indeed to women's sport resulted in you being awarded the mbe in 2018 is that right yes yeah, um which which is a fabulous accolade congratulations uh, and indeed you're the first guest i've been uh, I've had on the podcast who's been awarded an MBE, so I'm an exalted <laughs> company. But um, how must that have felt? I mean, that must tell me about the experience first and foremost. The, the, the day going to Buckingham Palace, all those sort of must have been terrific experience. Yeah, it was lovely, really lovely, and lovely to share it with the girl with my daughters to to be there with me and uh, my husband too. So actually, you not know, don't hit credit, but actually, so much of what I've done is because of my husband's support, and he's you know we I've got three daughters. He stopped working when we had our third daughter and has been at home with them as a sort of home dad and a supporter. So I think sometimes it's uh, easy to take credit for the things I've done, but actually it's the other people around you that have enabled that too. And he's very much a part of my success there. So it was lovely that he was then able to, you know, be there and share in that uh, award too. But yeah, really, it was a really exciting thing and lovely. And I think just, I remember the, um, when it's announced on New Year's Eve, and share and we kind of know because you're told about it a month before you get I was, was going to say what's Sworn the experience how do you find out so a letter arrives in the post and that's how you yeah, get so that you get first a get a letter yeah from H- HMRC or something and my husband called me I was at work and said you've got this thing I, you're either going to prison or it's something really positive <laughs> why you got a letter from the Queen's office uh, so yeah so you get a letter in November but they tell you must not tell anyone and I guess that's more for celebrities and so on. They like to keep it quiet. And then on the, the list is published on um, it's New Year's Eve or it's the Saturday before New Year's Eve, uh, about ten o'clock at night. So when that happened, that was just amazing. And then just the I guess it's just that outpouring of love and support and all that so for people that I haven't seen in forever. That was just that was just lovely, really, to realise how much it meant to other people as well who've been part of that journey with me across those 30 years at different times. So that's very lovely. And then you get your date to go to the palace. We were meant to go to um, Windsor Castle, actually. 
but we live in Windsor and for me and I love the castle but it felt a bit like I can get in there with my Vantage card <laughs> actually uh, Buckingham Palace felt like the proper place to do it if we were going to do it really so uh, so we, they were very lovely and they let us change to go and uh, do it at Buckingham Palace so yeah very lovely very special day so are you able to share the actual day itself? What what what, what do you go through? What's the experience like? <laughs> Quite a lot of hanging around. Uh, no, it was very lovely. There's lots <laughs> of queuing and waiting. And so uh, you go in with your family and then they're taken off into a, um, a different area to sit. And then you go up into a green room where there's no alcohol, uh, orange juice and water and you chat. And then a lovely man comes out and teaches you shows what you're going to need to do to bow, curtsy, whatever, talks through the formality. It's quite interesting, actually. So it does turn out, if I'd have been at Windsor, it would have been the Queen that made the award. And But you don't know that beforehand. So you get them. They don't tell you who's going to be doing it because everybody really wants the Queen. So uh, they don't. They won't tell you who it is because they they know that people might then try and change the date that they're going. Uh, so as it happens, I now realise it's the Queen. Just does, she may does Windsor. She doesn't go anywhere else anymore. But at Buckingham Palace. So you get there in the morning and you don't know who it's going to be. Is it going to be the Queen? Will it be Prince Charles? Or Princess Anne? Prince William? And then when he comes in and says, "Oh no, no!" And today is the Prince of Wales. You could almost feel the room go, "Oh." <laughs> There were people like, oh, okay, it's not the Queen. So, uh, but it was lovely, and he was very lovely, very. So you, yeah, so you taken in little batches of people you queue to go around. They put a little like a pin on you, so he can just pin it on to you the medal when you get there. So yeah, well, clearly very practiced. They're doing it every day for weeks and weeks and weeks, aren't they? Lots of people coming through, uh, but it isn't made to feel like you're on a um, a treadmill almost. It's beautifully done. And uh, yeah, very special. So, but he chatted quite a lot. So yeah, I was, was going to say, there, did, did he did he have any particular words for you? Any particular yeah. questions? We talked about women's sport. We talked about coaching. I said I've been working with Coach Core, which is his both sons were involved with at the time. Their charity sort of find a foundation. So we spoke about that. So no, it was quite chatty. On the video after, I think I, at the end I shake his hands with two hands, and my family mocked me. So I was much too over familiar with him. I should have been. <laughs> more respectful but I was all relaxed because he was very chatty and lovely yeah so yeah very very special what a fabulous experience many congratulations thank you um, thank you so what inspired me inspired me goodness me what inspired <laughs> you I should say um to launch your own podcast yeah the game changers is on series five yeah, uh, yeah. I think I'm right uh what again in terms of the inspiration where did the idea come from I think I was just beginning to listen to more podcasts. So it's a year and a half or so ago now. And I was in the office and I I think at the time I thought it would be more of a business to business, more of sharing the stories of women that had done great things in sport. I was conscious that there were some extraordinary women that had great achievements and perhaps we weren't telling their stories or people weren't aware of what they had done. So, yeah, it's just started out. And I guess it was good for the agency to raise our profile and to be seen to be doing something. I felt it was something I'd like to try so I did look originally actually it was when I went out to Australia as I mentioned that going out there I the first interview I did was with uh, Joe Harton it wasn't very it wasn't very good it never made it off the cutting room floor uh, as to be launched as a podcast but I um, so I thought I would do it myself and I looked at doing it through audacity thought I'd teach myself husband bought me a lovely big microphone for Christmas and then I realized actually I loved the talking to people and finding the guests and what have you but the tech bit wasn't really my bag so I went off and found a fabulous woman Sam Walker who uh, produces them for me she's x-radio five live so she does all the editing and all the rest of it and actually that's the bit that made the massive difference was working with her because whilst I say I had the inspiration and the ideas and I knew who I wanted to talk to what I wanted to ask actually she helped me to 
craft and shape the interviews and then uh, she takes them afterwards and makes them sound magnificent in terms of the overlay the music and just cutting out all the times I say I guess or I'm an R. so yeah so she's worked really hard I think and I th- so I think actually just that investing at the time in the product to make it really high quality is the bit that then really helped the success that it was always going to be good because they were great guests but actually uh, I think I, I have learned there are many companies out there making good content great podcasts but actually if they're not well produced and they're not well then publicized etc you can just almost like talking to an empty room aren't you so that's kind of what made the difference so yeah so the first two series we funded as an agency ourselves and you'll know from your side it's not it's not cheap it's not cheap to do it well I think it's cheap anyone can just do an interview and stick it up on a on a different platform but I think to do it well does take some investment and I think we did the first two ourselves and then my lovely team said you can't do another one because it's costing too much money and taking too much time and I was loving it too much clearly and so then I went out and looked for partners and that's where we're very lucky that so Barclays have come on board and sponsored two of based on women in football so fearless women in football which have been amazing and then we've just announced that Sport England is sponsoring this lovely series now uh, so we've got their backing too. So that's and that's exciting because it enables us to take it to a bigger audience as well as, uh, yeah, just to keep going with it and keep investing in it. So what have you enjoyed about it? I just love, I love everything about it, really. So, yeah, it is lovely. It's just lovely to talk to people for, I think, I almost didn't realise that when I started it. But actually to sit down and have an hour's conversation with someone where you can genuinely ask things you're interested in and you can explore things. So I've learned so much from talking to those people and I've loved learning. I've loved learning the process of what makes a good question and improving my process of, uh, you know, the, the actual interviewing, etc. Yeah, so the, the learning's been lovely. And then that access, and I guess it's that building, you have a, one or two fantastic guests who take you to the next thing. I was mentioned to you before, they said, nice. So I spoke to Jess Ennis Hill yesterday. So it's almost like the ultimate, uh, I've been trying to get her from series one, and but it's almost like you get a couple of fantastic guests that then lead you to others to others. So I think that's been really interesting as almost like how you get people to come on board with it and how you, what you get them to share, trying not to be too controversial. I've tried to create content that's, I now know the term evergreen, but uh, so that it is quite topical for now, but it but it isn't too newsworthy. So actually, if someone li- listens back to one of the episodes with a Claire Balding or, or Kate Richardson Walsh from the first episode series, it's still very um, interesting and relevant now, albeit that it's not too newsworthy. I try, you know, you can't help but allude to COVID now, can you? But try not to make it too much, too timely. But no, I've loved, I've absolutely loved the process of learning. I think I like learning things anyway, and and that putting yourself out there and risking it not being <laughs> it sound of your own voice is a bit scary. But yeah, that's gone really, really well. So tell me about Fearless Women, uh, the latest venture in which you're, uh, of which uh, there have been many, but the latest venture, <laughs> Fearless Women. Tell me about Fearless Women. Well, Fearless Women's kind of come about on a, on a, back, a sad note, really. So my agency, so I ran Promote for 26 uh, years, or we celebrated 25 years last year, and sadly didn't make it out of covid and all that's happened so we're very you know there's um 10 of us by the end but we're very much sports based working with major events um participation events etc uh, and i think about april may time we realized we weren't going to make it out the other side uh, i'm really happy to say that all the team have now got roles so some have gone very different directions and different opportunities some have picked up some of the clients that we were working for before some have gone to work for some of the clients we had in the past so the agency finished and so Fearless Women, really, I guess, is just me now following my passion for women's sport and to 
have an impact to make a difference to the world of, of women's sport, be that profile or participation. Uh, we talked a lot about role models, mentoring, etc. So it's a, really a, an umbrella organisation, an umbrella company under which sits the podcast, the book I think you'll we talk about in a moment the some consultancies so I'm supporting a couple of agencies in terms of their work around women and girls and women's sport and also we've just launched the women's sport collective so a network for women working in the sports sector so that could be coaches and those in academics as well as those in PR and comms and administration etc so we only launched that about 10 days ago we've had over a thousand uh, sign-ups already we did a pilot in the summer with the uh, women working in the sector about 70 women so yeah so that sits within it too so I guess it's a it fills women is a bit of a place to house all those different things but all focused around women's sport that's the kind of the real clear focus Fantastic. So tell me, you, you've, you've a book in the, uh, in the offing 2021, yes, yes. Uh, which I'm fascinated to, uh, to read when the time comes. Tell me again, to, what's the, what's the title and, and what's the content? What are you, what are you uh, going to be writing about or talking yeah, about? I've written, I've written, the book is written. written the what you've written about. Yeah, exactly. Yep, fantastic. So the title is uh, Game On, The Unstoppable Rise of Women's Sport. So I've, the book's been produced through Unbound, which is a crowdfunding publisher. So it's not it's not self-publishing, but you uh, get the whole book pledged for uh, before you launch it. So that's all been, you know, it's all paid for and done, just as it were now, but people can still make pledges. I should, yeah, a little shout out. If they want to go and find it at Unbound, they can still pledge. And there's various different prizes and awards and things that they can get as well as the books and hardback copies signed, etc. Uh, and I'm really lucky that actually Vitality came on board and they have backed it as well. So they're kind of helping to support get it out there too so it's it tells the story I guess a lot of it was my journey to understand some of the things we've talked about today really why women's sport is where it is what's happened in the past uh, that stopped it progressing you know what's caused the change what we're seeing now and what the hope is for the future so it's a bit of a manifesto and a rallying cry to help make change uh, but it's fascinating looking at the, uh, the bits that have really interested me almost is the going back in history and looking at why we are where we are today why women's sport is where it's today from a victorian frailty myth of we're all so weak we can't take part in these you know sports and our bodies will you know, we'll become infertile and all these t- horrible myths that were around around women and physical activity that really some of them still perpetuate a bit today that, you know, in the vision of what is femininity. So all those things, it covers off lots of those different areas, as well as looking at commercial sponsorship and partnership and spectators and all the elements that are important that are around sort of governance. And I think men in White Men in Blazers, I think is one of the titles there. So that governance of sport and how it, how it's changing. So it's a, it's a positive, hopeful book, but it does talk a lot about, you know, many of the issues that we're, we're still facing women's sport now. How have you found the journey of writing? You know, because I, I guess in uh, moments of the odd daydream, I, I sometimes reflect and think maybe there's a book in there somewhere, but it's never something I'd gotten around to. But did, did, what was the, what was the, the experience, if you like, of, of putting pen to paper? I absolutely loved it. It's interesting. It was hard to start. So I, what I did first of all was went out and got it funded. So you do all the work to get the book funded. And then it's like, oh, crap. I've got to write 70,000 words now. I didn't even do a dissertation at university. But actually, it was my lovely daughter, Molly, who's, who is at university, <clears throat> who talked to me and said, actually, what you need to do is just to do a mind map, mind map the book, and then mind map each chapter. And actually then taking that and putting that into a plan actually, then you've kind of almost got the beginnings of it. And then you build upon that and build upon the plan. So it was mainly weekends that I wrote. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday, throughout the summer. 
so it's taken about four months or so but um actually yeah go ahead and do it you should do it uh it, once you get into it i really really loved writing it and researching and talking to the people and, and getting stuff in so yeah the manuscript's now done 72,169 words i think and it's gone off it's now with a couple of expert readers so somebody from a sports sociology background somebody from a sports a commercial sports background and then on the 1st of October it goes to the uh, first structural editor and then it goes to a copy editor and a proof editor so there's a massive process now of editing those words so I'm hoping they'll they'll improve them or they'll add to them as we go through this process and then I think it's about six months they need from when it's actually the words are all finished and they've got the cover art agreed etc when it then goes out for pre-publicity and sales and to get it into bookshops and so on as well. So September 2021 is when it will be available around the Rugby World Cup in New Zealand. Fantastic. Well, I'll, I'll make a diary note myself, but not least, it would be great to have you back on maybe at the time we can talk <laughs> yes. about how the experience of, of of your first book has gone. I'd love to know a little bit more about it. So you, you mentioned earlier uh, role models. I mean, from your own perspective, who do, who do you admire? Who do you look to? Who are you inspired by? Yeah, I've been so lucky, haven't I? Because I actually I've got to talk to lots of them through the game changers. So I think that, uh, you know, that's definitely been an amazing experience for me of some of those women, you know, like the Sally Mundys at UK Sport and Catherine Granger and and, and Claire Connor, you know, just women have done amazing things within sports organisations and within sports bodies. So, yeah, so I guess you, you ask that question, I say look back at my 41 that I was spoken to for the Game Changers and it's probably many of them really that I do find great inspiration from. And and you I mean, clearly you're very, very busy, but what do you do to, if you, when you're not writing books, producing podcasts um, and doing all these <laughs> great things for women in sport, uh, what do you do to unwind, relax? And you, is there any downtime in, in Sue Anstice's life? There is. And she's probably more downtime now. I'm working from home than there was when I was in the office. I've got a, a dog that I walk three times a day and I definitely didn't walk anywhere. I'm looking back at my my phone at how much I'm walking so much more than I did when I was in the office day to day uh, and I swim I do open water swimming so through the winter and the summer but we swim through the winter in the cold water so that's something in the last two or three years I, t- I came to triathlon really late in life so I did a um, about 46 I started doing triathlons and I did a bit of a GB age group competing you know at last I got my GB vest I was not that I was jealous of my brother having competed internationally but took until I was 46 for me to get mine so I did a two or three years of quite competitive triathlon and then uh now it's much more about just swimming for pleasure so regular swimming in a lake with a lovely group of friends three four times a week and then yeah lots of walking fantastic so if you could go back in time what advice would you give to 20 year old you Mm, I'm actually very very happy where I am so I guess it's that is how much would I would I want to change I think it's I guess maybe it's the journey didn't need to be quite so painful in places I think probably having more confidence so about being brave to go out and try new things and not be worried about uh that you'll fail or what others will think I think is probably a a key point but yeah not that I wouldn't give myself advice but I'm 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 pleased with where I've got to so I think it is about just enjoying the journey and and recognizing it's what is important to you, really, isn't it? It's never been about money for me. So my career path, I've always wanted to have success, but success for me has been about having a lovely balance and doing the things that you love and being able to have an impact and so on. So I think my advice would be to stick with what it is that you believe. Don't get swayed by feeling the need to be more competitive or take a route that perhaps doesn't feel right to you. So what does the future hold for Sue Anstis? Yeah, more of the same. It's been really exciting, really exciting last six months. I almost feel 
COVID probably got me to a place where I hoped I might be in a decade. It probably got me there a bit sooner. But I like, it's, I love, you know, making an impact and, and being able to help other people. I think that it's shown me this last six months that that's really nice to be able to do, to uh, to know what you're doing is making a difference. And as I say, it's not, you know, a lot of what we're doing. I mean, the Women's Sport Collective, we're just doing off our own back. We're not getting paid to do it at the moment, but it's a lo- fabulous thing to do. So I guess as long as there's enough income that enables me to go off and do those fantastic things without having to make money from them. That's exciting to be able to make change and make difference. And I'd like to feel that through the book and the Women's Sport Collective and the Women's Sport Trust and the, you know, the things that we're doing, we will have an impact and make change. So a bit of that is that bringing people's voices together and magnifying what they're doing. So I hope to be a part, and there are many, many others out there playing their part too, but to be you know one of the the players making a difference or helping others to make a difference for, for women's sport and all that then you know it's not it's not just about women's sport I guess it's it's women's sport and in that much bigger picture because sport reflects and magnifies all we see in society so actually the fact that we see women's sport equally in papers and media coverage and athletes being paid that's a bit that gives young women and, and girls the confidence to know they are equal to men so for me it's that much bigger picture, but sport is so powerful that it's that much bigger bit of uh, influencing the whole of society because we are equal. And actually, equality is good for everyone. It's good for men and for women. So thank you. It's been fascinating. There are so many incredible things you're involved in and, and do. I'm convinced, I'm utterly convinced that people, as a consequence of listening to you here, are going to want to reach out. They're going to want to find out more. Where can they find you? Where should they go? Yeah. So uh, I'm so on LinkedIn. I'm everywhere at Sue Anstis. So on LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And then also the Game Changers is in those places too. And fearlesswomen.co.uk is the website. So they can also find us and, and all the different elements of the work we're doing through through the website too. So thank you very much. It's been great to speak with you uh, this morning. I've really enjoyed it. Appreciate your time and your input and your energy. Ladies and gentlemen, Sue Anstess, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's been fantastic. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to today's Astrology podcast. I really appreciate your uh, audience and ears. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, then uh, why not hop onto iTunes and give us a review? I'd really appreciate anything that you might have to say. Any feedback always gratefully received and uh, look forward to hosting you next time. See you soon. Just a reminder, today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners. Visit www.progressotalent.com today for more information.